Well, if you've been around College Church at all this summer, then like me, you've been reminded that God uses a whole lot of metaphor in the Bible to help us understand more of his character and nature and plan. Fire and wind, stones, as Vicki talked about last week, tabernacle and food, And as we've considered each of these things, I've been reminded over and over again what a great help and kindness these tangible items are to us as feeble and often simplistic human beings in knowing better our multifaceted and majestic God. And so as we've celebrated baptism this morning, it seems only fitting that we explore another prolific sign of God from the scripture, Water, which is kind of a daunting task when you realize that water is mentioned something like 722 times in the scriptures. Don't worry, we're not hitting all of them. But that's a lot. That's more than we read about worship or faith or even prayer. And while not each of these instances is intended to be a direct reference to God, the frequency with which we read about water in the Bible certainly does indicate for us something about water's significance and value and power in the physical world that God has created and intends for us to live. I'm sure at some point in your life you've heard the expression, water is precious. I've been thinking a lot about that this past week because I think I can grasp that truth cognitively, but I'm not really sure I can fully appreciate it living in our modern Western world where water is so easily accessible to me. I was recently talking with a friend who lives in the Middle East who described our country as America, the place where you can take a 40 minute shower whenever you like. I'm so grateful for the access that we have to this precious resource. But I guess I'm also hopeful that even in our position of great privilege, we still make efforts to understand and appreciate this great gift from God. When my kids were little, they were actually taught this in school. We were living in Colorado at the time during a period known as one of the worst droughts in that state's history. And I know that they were receiving this kind of conservation education because for the duration of my daughter's first year of preschool, she became the water patrol in our house. Whether I was brushing my teeth or washing the dishes, I would turn the spout on, dip my toothbrush or the sponge into the stream only to have a small hand reach across the counter and slam that faucet handle down with tremendous urgency. No matter how frequently this happened, which was multiple times a day, mind you, for the better part of a year of our lives, it always scared the tar out of me. It got so bad because I could not figure out where this little gremlin of a person was coming from, I started to search rooms before I would turn water on. I would search closets and cabinets, just sure that she was hiding somewhere ready to pounce because she took so seriously her job of ensuring that we were being responsible water users in our home. And the worst part about it all was that no matter how many times she slammed down that faucet with intense and passionate conviction and urgency that would send my heart rate into the stratosphere, 
when it was all over, she would just flash me the sweetest little grin of her crooked baby teeth and go, Mommy, every drop counts. <laughs> so that to this day, if I absentmindedly leave a faucet or the hose running for a few extra seconds, I am still haunted by this whisper, this voice in my head, every drop counts. And I can't argue with it. Because if I think about what water does, that I can go days without eating food, but only hours without drinking water, that the earth is comprised of something like 70% water, and my body is comprised of something like 50 to 60% water, then she's right. Every drop does count. But I so easily forget this when I don't feel the lack of water as a clear and present threat to my daily life. And yet in the ancient Near East, which is the, the land and the time period in which the Bible is set, the fear of going without water for indefinite periods of time was very much a reality. Wars were fought in order to gain land that had access to fresh water sources. These were the prime real estate territories of the day. And creative measures were taken to channel fresh water from places that received rainfall and were able to capture it to other places that were stricken with drought. But this required all kinds of ingenuity and resolve and a ton of manual labor because it was usually accomplished by the digging of incredibly long and deep trenches or tunnels from the place where water could be collected or pooled to the other places that were in need. And that was almost always through hard, rocky soil. I have a couple of pictures I want to show you. On your left is a picture of the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. You might recognize that title from some Bible reading. We'll actually talk about the Pool of Siloam in a moment. But this is one of those places in the ancient world that was coveted territory because when the rains would fall, it would gather or pool in this area. Well, about the 8th century, uh, people decided they needed to channel water from that pool into other places in the city that didn't have water. And so on the right is kind of a cut shot of what's known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, or the channel that runs off of the Pool of Siloam, helping guide water from that collection spot to other parts in the city. Because without aqueducts or canals like this, the hope of life seemed impossible in much of the ancient Near Eastern world. And so if we read scripture with this understanding and this sense of value that water held for this culture and these people, then we quickly realize that those 720 some references to water in the Bible, some of which you just heard John read from Isaiah's prophecy, these have deep and intentional meaning. God said to his people awaiting deliverance, I will open up rivers for you on the high plateaus. I will give you fountains of water in the valleys. I will fill the desert with pools of water. Do you hear it? God's promise of water is the promise of life. Where there is water, there is potential and possibility and provision. Everyone and everything understood the value of water in this culture, and everyone and everything understood the toil and the anguish of existing on earth in places that lacked it. 
Isaiah says that even the wild animals, the jackals and the owls would thank God for bringing water to the desert where without it there was the hope of nothing but death and decay. And so understanding the value of water for life and livelihood, Israel participated in a daily water ceremony as part of its celebration of Sukkot, the festival that John tells us was being celebrated at the temple in Jerusalem when Jesus arrives on the scene. Now, just in case you're not up to speed with all your Jewish feasts and festivals, I'll give you a, a brief overview of Sukkot. During this particular festival, Jews spend a week every fall remembering God's faithful presence among them as they escaped their slavery from Egypt and as they wandered for 40 years in the desert. And they celebrate all of the ways God abundantly provided for them during this period of their history, in spite of the challenging climate and conditions in which they were living. Sukkot is known by all kinds of names. It's called the Feast of Shelters, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, the Festival of Ingathering, and all of these titles or names make sense when you understand that as part of this annual celebration, Jews erect small shelters or booths, reminiscent of those they believed their ancestors would have lived in as they made their way through the wilderness. These tents recall that God not only provided a place for their relatives to live back then, but also a place where God dwelt with them. He accompanied them on the journey. And so after erecting these little structures, they, they camp in them, if you will, as they work the fields and bring in the harvest that God has so faithfully provided again for them. This is an agricultural celebration as so many of Israel's feasts and festivals tend to be. But in this particular celebration, one week long, each morning, the priests go to the Pool of Siloam. You saw the picture earlier. In Jerusalem, they go to the pool. I don't know that they use a glass pitcher, but contextually, it seemed to make sense to me. But they take their receptacles, and they gather water from the Pool of Siloam, and they take it to the temple, where at the end of each day, with the people gathered, they take that water and they walk around the altar, pouring the water on the ground and praying to God, first in thanksgiving, that he has provided yet again another year, the water that has helped the harvest to grow, their needs being met in what is now being reaped. And then asking God to continue to send water for the days ahead, asking God to continue to send them life and bountiful harvest in the future. Everything about this, these prayers, this ceremony, the entire festival demonstrates that the Israelites understood the precious resource of water. Because water equals harvest, water equals life. And so John tells us that on this final day of the festival that year in Judea, in the middle of this grand finale water ceremony as the priest is pouring the water on the ground and beginning to offer these prayers, Jesus, who has been quiet up to this point, knowing that the Jewish leaders are plotting his arrest, he speaks up and loudly proclaims, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I got to believe this caused a bit of an awkward pause in things. In fact, if we keep reading beyond verse 39, beyond where Regan read, John tells us that Jesus' words threw the entire festival into pandemonium. People were confused. There was chaos with the wondering, what was Jesus talking about? What was happening? And I think it's understandable because remember, we read this account with the benefit of John's perspective. Hindsight, if you will, it's the parenthetical part where he says to us, when Jesus said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. John tells us that Jesus wasn't referring to himself as the living water. Instead, he was equating the role of water, of life, to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the one that would be received by Christ's followers once Jesus' earthly life was over, after he had died, risen, ascended into heaven, and been glorified by the Father the spirit that would remain with Jesus' followers, empowering and equipping them, serving as the life stream for them as they continued forward with the mission of God in this world. This was the same water Jesus offered the woman at the well, which John had recorded just a few chapters earlier. He encouraged her to ask him to give her a drink of what he called living water, Water that could quench even her deepest thirst. Water that would never grow stagnant or stale, but that would forever be a bubbling spring within her. Water that promised life, but life eternal. You see, I don't think Jesus interrupted the water ceremony that day during Sukkot simply to draw attention to himself or to one-up the priest with his simple pitcher of pool water. But because he understood the plight and the plea of his people who for years had annually participated in the thanking God for the life-giving gift of water and the pleading with God to continue offering them what they needed to continue on, to have life in the future. And he chose this moment to connect their practice of the liturgical outpouring of water in the temple to God's desire to pour out his Holy Spirit upon them so that they might truly have life, life eternal. So while we as Christians don't necessarily celebrate Sukkot or participate in this particular water ceremony that John is describing here, we do engage with water in a very meaningful way through the sacrament of baptism. As the believer, just as we saw this morning, is submerged or sprinkled with the waters of baptism, the old person is buried and then risen anew with Christ, having been born again, Jesus says, of water and the spirit. 
and this gift of water of the Holy Spirit means that Baptism Sunday like today is an occasion upon which there is much, much to celebrate because another wellspring has been opened. Another pipeline is connected to the life-giving fountain of the Holy Spirit through the heart and life of the believer. Another aqueduct is created, if you will, whereby this life-giving water can travel to people and places and situations existing in the darkness and despair of desert and drought. Jesus tells us, we are the technology, friends. We are the greatest irrigation system that has ever been conceived of. We are the channels by which the life-giving stream of the Holy Spirit, every last drop can be transmitted into God's beloved world. See, I am doing something new, God says. Do you not see it? I am making pathways through the wilderness. I am creating rivers in dry wasteland. God's promise to bring life is being manifested in the lives of his people through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the living water that springs forth from within us. And so today, we celebrate with Josiah and with little Elliot who was baptized during first service, but we have a chance to remember ourselves our own baptisms, and recall the work that God is continually doing in and through us. And I wanna challenge you today to respond to this word and this work of God, here and now. Every week as you leave this place, you likely have seen these stations by each of the exits. And uh, contrary to popular belief, these are not hand washing stations or bird baths. They're not even intended as torture devices for parents of young children who can't resist the urge to flick a little water at their sister or grandpa or whoever was within range. I've seen some of you eye these stations and you look a little skeptical. They say remember your baptism, but there's nothing magical or mystical about this, okay? Let's get that straight. This is remembering. And so I wanna encourage you, if you are baptized today, to take a moment as you leave, today and any time you leave this sanctuary, dip a finger or two in the water and feel it marking your skin. And remember, you are filled with the fountain of life that is the Holy Spirit. For some of you, that's as far as it's gonna go, I realize, that's cool. Some of you might pause a bit longer and take that water and put it on your forehead or even make the sign of the cross. And remember that just as Jesus met with sinners and ate with tax collectors and was called to the mission of God in this world, so he has filled you with the Holy Spirit and called you to this renewing work. I realize I would be remiss if I didn't stop here though and acknowledge the fact that not everybody in this room has been baptized and that's okay too. If you're someone who is still asking questions, doesn't understand, needs somebody to argue with about it, let's talk. 
grab me, grab one of the other pastors here at College Church. We would love to have a conversation with you about the gift of the Spirit that Jesus desires to impart to each of us. But if you are baptized, I encourage you again today to feel the water on your skin and remember that just as those drops of water go with you, so the power of the Holy Spirit goes with you, inviting you in Christ to the refreshing kingdom work God desires to do in this community and in our world through you.